Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. on the show, who's executive science officer of the nonprofit Mind Research Network and a professor of psychology, neurosciences, and law at the University of New Mexico, and author of the recent book, The Psychopath Whisperer, The Science of Those Without Conscience. Whoa, that is some heavy, heavy stuff. Thank you for, for coming on the podcast, Kent. Well, thanks, Scott, for having me. There are lots of things that we can talk about that I know will be of immense interest to uh, our listeners. I want to begin by asking, why did you title the book The Psychopath Whisperer? So the, it was a fine, trying to find a, um, something that would appeal to a large audience, but also had some form of keeping the science uh, together. But The Psychopath Whisperer kind of helped to convey um, you know, a number of different features of the book, which was you know, using neuroscience to understand them, uh, some new treatment programs that are helping to reshape their behavior and so-called whisper with them or, or listen to the, so it's kind of an integration of different things, but it was, there certainly was a, an interest by the editor in having something that would be catchy and would sell to the, you know, public uh, markets. And it has been selling well, right? Yeah, it's done okay. I mean, I think my publisher would like to have five more printings by now, but um, it's, uh, it's doing okay. It's actually also sold in, in Turkey, Japan, China, the Netherlands, the UK, and I'm trying to remember all the different ones, but they, I keep getting uh, contracts every week from my publisher, so it's apparently doing well in international as well. Well, congratulations. Thanks. It's actually very exciting. It's very fun. That is exciting, yeah. Uh, so why are you, you know, I think everyone's interested at some level in understanding psychopaths. Why do you think there is such a interest in understanding psychopaths? And then I would obviously like to know why are you personally 
interested and how did you get interested in this topic? Yeah, well, first of all, I share the general person's interest in understanding psychopathy or psychopaths. And I certainly, I, I think the only difference is that I got so interested in and I made a career out of it versus most people have a passing interest in some, uh, you know, and, and, but I think that the, the, the real thing is that they're just so different from the rest of us and their behavior is so, um, odd, if you will, or clinically, um, different from what most of us do and act and think and feel that most people, I think, are just fascinated by that. Um, and some of it might be a little bit of a morbid curiosity or wondering if your worst, darkest thought is actually something that makes you psychopathic. Um, but generally, I think that there's just a very strong and, and they're uniquely uh, different. Um, of course, you have to they often do very, very, very bad things. And so it's sometimes quite difficult to, to, you know, interview and work with them when you know about the things that they've done. But, um, but anyway, it, it's, it's, they are just clinically fascinating. Um, and you, why, why, how long have you been, have you, has it all, have they always been a fascination of yours? Well, it's one of those things that growing up, um, in Tacoma, Washington, uh, Ted Bundy actually, uh, grew up down the street and my father was a writer for the local newspaper, and he wrote these stories about this prolific serial killer from the Northwest um, when I was growing up. And so we would just be sitting there, and I remember distinctly at the dinner table just asking my parents, well, how does somebody get like that, or how could they come and behave like that from our little sleepy you know, neighborhood that we grew up in? And so that kind of manifests as, as something to be, I got me really interested when I was in undergraduate at UC Davis, and I had a great abnormal psych professor and another couple of great professors who, you know, basically got me along an academic trajectory. And then I just decided to try to make a career um, where that was the main focus. Um, and I, I and I, it just has been, you know, a, a ride ever since. Yeah, I mean, you've you've definitely been a pioneer in this field. And um, I almost wonder if a lot of people get selected out of studying psychopaths because they, they can't tolerate um be the mind games of psych, you know, actually, uh, you know, especially like clinicians who have yeah. to, right? Don't, don't they get, I mean, they can't all cut it, right? Um, it's true. I mean, the working with them necessitates a certain frame, frame, you know, frame of mind. And also it's not that different from, I think, how a lot of law enforcement um, individuals have to deal with working with the front lines with individuals like this and seeing the totality of the bad things that they do and, and then having to, you know, maintain a professional distance or an emotional distance so they can continue to do their job. Um, and working with, you know, in maximum security prisons with, you know, psychopaths and non-psychopaths and all different other types of individuals that end up in those types of facilities, um, you, you do have to be able to have a slightly different frame set. So we've had, you know, lots of research assistants who they write me and they say that all they want to do is go work in maximum security prison and study them. And, you know, one of my famous cases was, a research assistant who I was giving a tour around one of the maximum security facilities. He'd been, you know, excited to move to the New Mexico and work with them. And one of my favorite inmates famously yelled out the, the tier, Hey, hey, Dr. Keel, thanks for bringing us a new lollipop. Oh, no. And, well, he, the, and he heard that? And he heard that. And I turned and was going to joke, like, what flavor do you think he is? You know? Yeah. And the, his response was to be petrified. And, you know, unfortunately he, you know, he, he left the lab about a week later that he realized that he just wasn't comfortable in that kind of an environment. And so I guess I've just naturally always felt like, um, I can handle myself in those types of situations and, 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 and work with them and, 
try to study them and understand them, and it's never really bothered me. Um, but it's not something for everyone, for sure. Sure. Um, I mean, it almost seems like you're comfortable with psychopaths at some level. Yeah, in prison. Are you, are you a psychopath? <laughs> no, no, okay. no. In prison, in prison, in a controlled environment, it's great. Um, working with them, I'm very sensitive to uh, all of the stories and everything. So, like, if I meet someone in a bar who I think might be a little bit off or a little bit different, then... I'm like the last person now that's going to get in any sense uh, in an altercation with them because of all the stories of, you know, the guy getting mad and then hitting him in the bottle in the back of the head and you fall and kill yourself, um, you know, or die, you know, in those types right. of situations. So I'm very sensitive to, um, you know, those types of situations now versus when I was younger, you know. Um, and so you definitely learn a lot from, from working with them. Yeah, and you certainly done a lot of research in the book, uh, a lot of really fascinating um, insight into both the nature and nurture of psychopaths, um, but I want to. You you mentioned you you've mentioned so many nuggets of gold so far, and like I'm like already overwhelmed. Which thread should I pick up first? You know, I'm trying to prioritize. But you said something very interesting. Uh, going back a little bit, you said that people wonder. You know, are these dark thoughts that I have? Does that mean I'm a psychopath? And yeah, I think that'd be really cool. Let's talk. Uh, really interesting to talk about the difference between like the dark triad. You know, non-clinical version of psychopathy and like clinical psychopathy. Could you please talk about the difference and maybe um, to, uh, relax a lot of my listeners who might have lots of dark thoughts? <laughs> well, sure. I, th I think the most important thing to, to remember when you're assessing psychopathic traits is that it is a trait. Um, and so that is you have to have evidence of something like a, a lack of empathy at home, at work, at school, with family and friends and something that's pervasive in all forms of, of, of your life. And then also that trait has to be associated with some form of impairment. So you have, in order to be a, a personality disorder, in order to constitute a really pathological level of the trait. And in that context, um, you know, to have an inability to appreciate empathy, for example, so that it leads to nothing but short-term relationships, very poor relationships with family, no connections with your parents anymore or with um, siblings. It leads to very short-term, you know, business acquaintances, and you can't keep and hold a job down because you um, don't develop those types of, of feelings towards others and trying to work in a team, for example. And so it, it has to be associated with a high level of different types of impairment, and then you're dealing with the trait. Um, Whereas I think normal variation in personality, uh, you know, that you mentioned, which might be, you know, someone with very low psychopathic traits, but nevertheless is different from somebody else, um, they might just have problems maintaining relationships, for example, but they otherwise have adapted and found a way to work at, you know, with other people at work or in, in, the, in the job that they've chosen, et cetera, and they don't necessarily lead to dysfunction or failure to achieve normal occupation, educational, or other types of, 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 of things. But... And so it's, um, I think it was famously spoken by a good friend of mine who, who said, Kent, you know, you, you talk about those that score over 30 in the, on the, on the psychopathy checklist. That's like the top 15 percentile. But I don't want to date somebody who scores a 10, you know, out of, out of 30. That would be right. someone who would be a very problem. So I think that there's, it's, you, there's a lot of utility in understanding that there's both a, a very powerful dimensional aspect to the condition, that is some people are more or less, but also that, there's only a certain point at which the traits become really problematic from a from a clinical perspective, um, and that's that's uh, that's the ones that we work with mostly. Now, this under ten is it because they'd be too boring? Is that the idea? Well, the um, they would you know, be they would be fun to party with. <laughs> uh, it depends on where you want to end up the next morning. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, it is it is the case that you know a lot of them are fun and engaging and they're fun conversationalists, but. I, 
most of their relationships don't end well. You know, they end with somebody either owing them money or somebody who they've stolen things from or somebody who they've, you know, they've left or children they're not, you know, uh, taking care of or all these other types of situations. It really is a, um, an, a, a, a amazing, if not fantastic, um, just carnage that they leave behind them. Um, and and the, right. the, one of the things that's fascinating is that it just doesn't, they don't assume that it's a problem for anybody else because it doesn't bother them. And so they really kind of lack insight into how their behavior impacts others. That's one of the central characteristics. But yeah, but your friend says something like they wouldn't want to be someone on the other extreme either, like under 10. So well, was, oh, no, 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 no. Oh. She, she was saying that they, she wouldn't even want to date somebody who scored a 10 out of 40. Oh, I'm sorry. I misunderstood. I thought the, I thought the joke there was like, you know, at both extremes, they wouldn't want to date someone like that. No, 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 no. Oh. Sorry. No, she was, she, she would, uh, the, the woman that I'm referring to, she would happily date someone who scored, you know, a one or a two or a three, gotcha. you know, gotcha. who's going to be a nice, stable individual of good emotional intelligence. Okay. And, okay. and yeah, so no, that, sorry. Yeah. You could sorry see, you could see my, my interpretation yes. of that was like, yes. oh, because they're too, too boring, you know? <laughs> no, I, I think that, you know, the average North American male will score about four. Okay. Right? Well, this is good information. I did not know this. Yeah. So then... Um, to be uh, uh, so thirty and above, you start hitting psychopath range. Is that right? Yes. And then um, you're a card carrying psychopath at what, like thirty seven, thirty eight? Uh, right. So the, the scores range from zero to forty. Okay. The average male scores about four. The average inmate will score about twenty. Okay. Um, the psychopath is usually defined clinically and for research purposes as thirty or above. Okay. And then we typically, for research purposes, if we were studying. And we have um, it, somewhere over 34 is going to be the people that we really believe fit the classic definition of psychopathy. So kind of, um, you know, well above the normal cutoff um, in, in terms of uh, uh, the criterion. And you've, you've, uh, you've, you're quoted somewhere saying that um, when you meet someone like at 37 above, like it, they're quali- there's almost like they're qualitatively different species. Like you really, you really see something different at the yes. really extreme end. Could you... Maybe explain a little bit what what is that like being with someone at, at such the extreme end. So the way they typically present is um, uh, they're very forward, they're very socially disinhibited. They might be the first inmate to start calling you by your first name um, versus someone else who maintains a, a large level dose of respect or something. And oh no, I called you Kent. I introduced yeah, you as well, Kent Kiel. Of course, we've known each other for probably twenty <laughs> years already. So, but um, it, it just becomes uh, and and the real palpable clinical sense is just that. You can immediately recognize that their affect is different. Their eyes um, have a subtle kind of disconnection with the rest of their um, their body features. A little bit better than that, yeah. But um, they they look at you with more of a of a flat uh, kind of perspective. Is it scary? Just, does it give Does it give you like ever give you the chills? Um, no, I think uh, I when I see someone who has those types of traits again, I just think that it's clinically you know fascinating and interesting. And wow. when when I meet someone who I know, like before, when I read their file, who's going to score high, yeah. um, it's really, you know, fascinating to see that fully manifest. Like I just interviewed someone who had spent the last 10 years in solitary confinement, and I expected them to, you know, be very closed and difficulty talking and everything else. And they were the most glib, entertaining, just uh, like it was like as if they, you know, they were on vacation and they were talking to you. Um and it was uh, that's pretty common. It's just this sense, this voluble sense of chatting and talking, and nothing really bothers them. They don't have any problems being alone. Um, they feel, uh, you know, it, it was pretty amazing. It's just pretty amazing. So it's the affect, though, that I think really strikes you clinically. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, just a, a frank 
a willingness to talk about just about anything, and, and it's and it's completely uninhibited. I mean, they'll just talk to you about um, pretty much anything. Versus somebody who scores low on the traits might be inhibited about talking about their crime, or or get sad about it, or get um, you know, and just feel like they don't want to talk about it because they, um, you know, it's just distressing. They made a big mistake, and they don't feel like they talk, want to talk about it. Um, and so it's just a very different clinical presentation. So it's just, you're you're incredible. It's like you're immune to. The psychopath charm. It's almost like there's some set of characteristics in you that allows you to um, to uh, maybe mindful. It's like you're good at mindfulness or something. Do you do any mindfulness meditation? It's like you're able to distance that from you. Um, for the most part, I, I think I'm able to keep a good professional distance. But I, I typically, in my clinical style is such that I try to engage them and talk to them and get them to talk about everything because I need that information to understand all the ways in which they're different and how they got that way. Yeah. Um, and so I think I've done a, I've enjoyed that part of the science that we do is, is doing the interviews. In fact, if anything, that's, that's what most of my staff enjoy too, is the, the true interactions and working with them and talking with them. Um, and that, that's because they're, they just, it just, it just like pops out like a book, like right out of the text, you know, that this is an individual with these traits. They're just very different. It's, 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 it's very similar to other types of, of illnesses that, you know, you just, the first time you ever meet one or see someone, right. um, they're just so different. And you just like, how could that happen? And you want to understand it. Well, this is interesting because psychopathy is not considered a, a mental illness um, and uh, in the sense that schizophrenia is. Um, they were called suffering souls, right? Um, so mental illness, it's a good question how you define mental illness. I, I define it as anything that leads to, you know, uh, pervasive problems at home, at work, at school, family, and friends. So schizophrenia definitely fits which is the hearing voices, hallucinations, et cetera. But I also consider psychopathy to be a mental illness. If, okay. if you, I consider personality disorders like borderline and um, et cetera to have, uh, you know, cause a lot of distress and dysfunction in the individual. And so to me, I consider them to be mental illnesses as well. So if you take a broad definition of mental illness, um, then that's typically most people will define it as such. But I don't really try to limit it to just the clinical um, access one, so to speak, you know, conditions. Okay. Well, that's interesting, yeah, because uh, Robert Hare, um, who was one of your mentors, is that right? Yeah, yes, he was. Um, would he would he say that it's not a mental illness? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I still work quite closely with him. If he was to, uh, he would he would take the same tack that I have. That is, it's not an Axis 1 condition, it's an Axis 2 condition. It's a personality disorder, but I consider personality disorders to be associated with impairment, and to me that constitutes a mental illness. Okay. So in terms of let's let's get and in, dive into the nature nurture controversy a bit. I think we both can agree and and start from the point that it's always this interaction, this complex interaction of nature and nurture throughout the course of development. You can't neatly separate these components. You've studied these components separately as well as how they interact. And I thought we could start with the difference between the psychopath and the sociopath. Sure. Sure. Well, um the psychopath, you know, term was coined in the early 1800s, um, you know, to describe individuals who suffered from various pathological states. And it became, you know, ever more focused on the interpersonal and affective traits um, throughout history. The term sociopath was coined in the behaviorist era, you know, Skinner and others, when they felt that you were a blank, blank slate when you were born and social forces, sociopathic, so social forces would mold you to be whatever you were. Um, and so that term is not used in, you know, academic parlance anymore. Um, but it was very common in that behaviorist era of psychology. 
Um, and some people still refer, you know, in, in, in popular, you know, writings to the sociopath who was like made yeah. to be that way, like a Dexter type of character or something like that. Do you like that, the show Dexter, by the way? Um, it's, you know, it's very fictionalized. There's sometimes nuggets of truth in there. And Is I, there? Okay. Yeah, but um, it's it's very much a fictionalized, you so know, he's character. Not, Dexter's not like the stereotypical psychopath you you talk. Actually, about. actually, I don't think Dexter's a psychopath. Oh, what do you think he is? A um, So what's interesting about Dexter is, is that's difficult to uh, people recognize is that um, although he does all of those bad crimes, he, um, he he's more like a, a military-like person who is charged with ridding the world of evil in this regard. But when Dexter can keep a relationship and, he, you know, he, you see all the emotional pangs associated with children and um, he can keep a job for a long period of time and, you know, he has, you know, good relationships with his sister. Um, and so those types of things you wouldn't see in individual psychopathy. It'd be very, they'd be having four or five different wives. He'd be moving from job to job and switching all around and getting laid off or fired for being, you know, lackadaisical or doing cheating or not showing up for work, et cetera, drinking on the job, et cetera. And so those would have to be relevant to score him high on, on a trait related behavior. Um, we actually scored Dexter in, in one of my classes for fun to illustrate, uh, you know, television characters um, and, and how they might score. And, and people become surprised that he scores just a little bit above the average inmate, despite the, the very bad things that, that he's done. Um, and so it, it, it just becomes a bit of an exercise in understanding how traits are assessed in this condition. Yeah. And, you know, vi- vi- you make the point in your book that violence doesn't necessarily equal psychopathy. Um, I thought that was a really interesting point. Sure. I mean, a single bad event doesn't define a person's uh, personality. Okay. And so if you, you know, have a lot of stressors that occur and all sorts of things go bad in your life and the person that's responsible for all of those stressors um, and you get in a heated argument and you hit them and they file and died, um, but you've otherwise, you know, had a stable relationship with your wife and you have two kids who love you and you've taken great care of them and you have... Your parents are in nursing homes because you've placed them there to take great care of them and they're aging and you have all those great interpersonal relationships and then you've completed school without cheating and you've done, you know, uh, achieved your academic success and you have friends that stand by you and say, I can't believe this person would act like this or would ever have something like happen. It must have been an accident. Well, those are evidence that the trait, it's not really a trait like, you know, behavior. Um, and so the, it basically it's bad. I'm not saying that it's not excusing it, but right. it's not necessarily psychopathic. So okay. versus, you know, State somebody straight, maybe you're like a temporary. Can you be a temporary psychopath? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, the term psychopath is supposed to be a trait related disorder, but um, we might have to come up with a state, uh, a state, a state, a state psychopath. We might could be do a, the studies. We could try to induce the could. state of psychopathy. That well, that, uh, that might be psychopathic by some. That might be considered very psychopathic, but, but the actual motivation to, to do it and everything else is supposed to have some sort of higher moral ground that leads you to be able to do such a thing. Mm. Um, and so certainly some people are more able to do those types of things than others, and many most of us couldn't do those types of things. And so, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're psychopathic. It just means that we're um, been trained and educated in, in a different, you know, set of circumstances. You know what I mean? It's not a trait. Um, versus think- versus you know you have somebody who you know kills somebody and then they uncover that they've got four wives in different states, you know, and they have all in, in need of help and assistance and they have a another house that they're living in where they keep all of their money and resources and they have parties there and they you know they have convictions for a wide variety of different types of crimes and they've 
you know, they've claimed bankruptcy in all these different states and they're never willing, they're still willing to go engage and solicit more money from other people, yeah. you know, and then you realize, well, then that homicide might likely be more a reflection of their personality rather than a reflection of some trait or state related problem that they had that led to that type of, a, of an incident. So, so that, that's what I try to bring across in the book is that you can't define psychopathy by any one bad deed. Um, and in fact, we actually, one of the main ways we score the, to, to eliminate that one bad deed from creating a halo effect, you're often asked to score the individual ignoring that index offense. So score them as if they didn't commit that homicide of the, you know, uh, and you should get the same score. Right. Um, right. So that's, that's one of the difficulties that you run into when someone has done one really bad thing or has sent some sort of sexual crime that some people have a lot of problems clinically assessing and making sure that they're not um, allowing that one bad thing to influence all the items because it really can only count towards a few of them. Um, and so that's, that's, that's part of the training that we do and provide um, to clinicians around the world to make sure that they're scoring the traits correctly because when you score these traits really correctly, the reason why people talk about this condition still is because it predicts things. Um, you know, what other checklist of symptoms could you fill out for somebody to know um, with an 80% chance where they're going to be in 10 years? Oh, wow. The prediction's that good. Yeah, so if, if you're a violent offender and I want to know um, if you're going to reoffend, if you score high on psychopathy within 20 years, you're going to, there's an 80, 95% chance you're going to be convicted of a new violent crime. Versus if you score low, we know that you're going to be only about a 40, 50% chance you're going to commit a new crime. So there's a rough doubling of risk. Well, let me um, ask you something. Is there a different flavor of the kind of crime psychopaths commit versus non-psychopaths who are in jail for violent crimes? Um, that's a good question. There has been some uh, analyses of um, different types of crimes um, and who's more likely to commit those types of crimes. Um, and so the psychopath appears to be somebody, uh, the best way that you know we describe this is psychopath is somebody's an equal opportunist. They'll commit just about any type of crime. Um, whereas the non-psychopathic individual who's in jail for just drug abuse or doing burglary or something like that usually sticks to the same type of pattern. So it's actually an item on the psychopathy checklist, which is criminal versatility. And it's not meant to, con to convey that they're good at criminal activity. It's meant to say that they're willing to engage in a wide variety of activity. Quantity, not quality. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've, we published a thing on criminal success and we asked, you know, from a, from a treatment perspective, from a punishment perspective, um, you know, does our psychopaths basically, you know, negatively reinforce for, you know, a, a significant proportion of their crimes? And it turns out that psychopaths often commit probably anywhere from 50 to a thousand times as many crimes as they actually get caught for. Oh, wow. Right. So then you're like, well, if you never punish them for all of those different crimes, then they really never learn from, you know, just the single one or two times in which they were caught. Um, and so it, it raises a whole bunch of interesting questions about how to manage them and how to work with them. Um, you know, when they're willing to engage in such a wide variety and such a frequency that they'll, they never learn from the occasional punishments. Kind of like it just doesn't reinforce, um, you know, the behavior uh, to be good. Yeah, and that is something, a common thing with psychopaths is that reinforcement learning seems to be impaired. Correct. All right. And, yeah. uh, and you've done research on that. Yeah, there's, we have done a bit. Um, the classic thing in psychopathy is that they, they don't appear to, uh, have any anticipatory concerns with punishment. So if I told you that, and you know, your finger on the keyboard is going to get shocked um, when I count down from 10 to 9 to 8, to, and when I get I'm to... I'm going to freak out at 9. Yeah, you'll probably move your hand away from the keyboard, yeah. right? And so you have uh, ample dose of uh, anticipatory fear for punishment. 
Whereas there's been a number of studies, you know, replicated studies showing that individual psychopathy don't get nervous or anxious in anticipation of punishment. Now, they do get the same response to the punishment stimuli. So when I punish you, um, they show the same response as you, you do. Get pissed you know? off. Yeah, and they get skin connections and heart rate changes, etc. But we think that there's a normal distribution in how people respond to punishment oh. and so, or fear of punishment. And that helps shape people's behavior. So if you're in the low end of the responsiveness to fear of punishment, then you're unlikely to um, necessarily learn from that in the same way the rest of us. We take it for granted, for example, that, you know, if we do something bad, we're going to end up in prison and we don't want that to happen. Or if we, you know, speed on the way home from work, we're likely to get a ticket, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's just an ample dose of us being, you know, anticipatory concerns, whereas that anticipatory concern is what's really lacking in psychopathy. What percentage of prisoners are psychopaths? Um, well, the North American, you know, scores generally, if you use that cutoff of 30, you're looking at about 15 to 18% um, will meet criterion for psychopathy. Doesn't seem uh, a lot. It's not. In fact, it's um, in some of the prisons we've worked at, for example, here in New Mexico, for whatever reason, the rate is about half that. Um, huh. we, we find the problems here are most more likely related to substance abuse and other types of problems, um, social problems, poverty, et cetera, um, and whereas the rate of psychopathy is different versus some of the prisons we work at in other states, um, you know, and it might be because they're just much larger states, but we find uh, the violent offenders have a, and the offenders we're working with have a, have a normal rate of psychopathy or, or a higher rate. Is there a lower rate of psychopathy in Los Angeles because most of them are out there uh, in the movie business instead and not in the jails? <laughs> well, unless they're getting caught. I can tell you an interesting story. We actually had a colleague at a big meeting. Um, it was one of these small meetings where you isolate a group of scientists, you know, 100 scientists for about two weeks. And... A uh, Scottish professor got up and talked about how the rate of psychopathy was only 5% in the Scottish prison population. And immediately to my right, an English professor uh, from England started typing on his computer and analyzing um, some data. And he, he proudly stood up and boldly interrupted in the middle of the guy's talk. And he said, he said uh, David, David, he goes, um, I'd like to let you know that... Um, the rate of psychopathy in, in, uh, of Scottish prisoners in my English prisons is 50%. And he goes, I'm afraid your town's boring, my friend. And they came to London where they got pinched. And so they're all doing time in my prison. And they actually did some analyses and found that there was a massive, you know, kind of migration, um, of, of individuals with high psychopathic traits out of mm. Scotland and into the London. Cause that's what's exciting. So psychopaths, What's it's really fascinating part of the the behavior of the condition is that they're very nomadic. That is, they're yeah. they're not they don't develop attachments to any person, place, or thing, or education, or anything. So when bad things happen, they're def no problems moving and starting up someplace new. And and they're glib, so they're funny and they're entertaining, and they meet people quickly. And then they ask, "Hey, can I stay with you?" Sure. And then the next thing you know, your you know your wallet's stolen, and they've moved on someplace else. And so right, right, right. you know this happens you know very you know very very commonly. And so. I think that they're, they don't do well, um, and this is some of the evolutionary theories tap into this type of drive. That is, they're just um, they're really pushed or pressured to continue to move and to seek new environments. Um, so they're very socially disinhibited. Oh, um, I have two follow-up questions to that one. Sure. One was Christopher Columbus a psychopath? Um, I wish I had a better uh, assessment of his personality. Okay. If you could give me some uh, some. Uh, you know, biographical details I might be able to tell you, but certainly, um, well, you know, willing to command. And if you look at it as a military-like conquest, then 
those are not necessarily again good things to do, but they're not necessarily psychopathic like things to do. So, yeah, well, again, if if Christopher Columbus came over and killed some people in order to claim his stake in the new land, and then he actually took the money there or something that he earned or the gold or the cents or whatever back to England and gave it to the king, you know, well now if he if you took three quarters of it to Jamaica and he's got a special place there that he's got all of his friends hanging out with and partying and drinking, and he only takes 5% back to the king to pay for, you know, never pays him back but asks for 10 more ships. Well, now you're talking more and more one of my guys. You know, that's, I see that, what you're saying. So if Christopher Columbus acted like that, then uh, then we might be having to score him a little higher. You said one of my guys. Are there sex differences in psychopathy? And if if there are, um, does, is there a different flavor? Is the female psychopath a different flavor than the male? Um, yes. Um, for every one psych, or sorry, for every ten psychopaths, there's only one female. Oh, wow. um, why, so, why is that? Why is that? Um, I think there's a variety of reasons, but the the, best, the most important is biological. Um, that is, women have very different brains than men, um, okay. and the areas of the brain that we find devoid or deficit in psychopaths, uh, the majority of those regions, women actually have more gray matter than men do. Um, and so it might be that there are neuroprotective factors associated with being a female that leads you to have l- lower psychopathic traits than, than males. I mean, many, many, many studies from around the world have shown consistently, including my undergraduate thesis, um, you know, 25 years ago showed that, you know, women score lower on psychopathic traits than do men. Um, and women have different brain regions, uh, bra- you know, brain structure and function. Um, in the same regions that we find deficits in psychopaths. Um, but do female psychopaths, when they do exist, are they pretty much the same kind of things? Yeah, they are. They're, and again, they're very rare. Um, I've only interviewed a handful in, in my career. Um, and they are, they, they, the behaviors are very similar. I mean, the way they present the affective problems they present with the um, behaviors and the, um, the things that they've done are very similar. Um, you know, it's, it's rare for them to be violent you know, generally, but they they will have stabbed somebody, or they will have not have any fears around you know hitting somebody or other types of stuff. But they're not usually going to kill someone with a single blow like you find with a lot of psychopaths. Um, okay. You know, there's a lot of psychopaths I've interviewed who get in a lot of bar fights and they keep kicking just that one extra time that puts the guy's skull through the side of his head, and then they run off. And that, yeah, that guy died. They said, but he deserved. He got what he deserved. Whereas the the female, just from a physical size perspective, is unlikely to have that same outcome. Um, so the person might have been injured, but isn't necessarily a fatality. Well, so what is the prevalence rate of, uh, this is my second follow-up question, um, ADHD and psychopathy and uh, autism and psychopathy? What are the... Uh, yeah, um, so I think ADHD is definitely commonly misdiagnosed um, in individuals with these characteristics. So you often find that children with these traits are being seen by psychiatrists or psychologists and they're being interpreted as saying that, well, they're just, you know, they're not able to sit still, they don't do it, you know, they don't sit around, but those traits can often be misconstrued as being related to psychopathic or uh, psychopathic-like traits in children or what we refer to as callous and emotional traits in kids and the impulsivity that we see in kids um, can usually be or is commonly just attributed first to ADHD and the frontline medication is given to try to see if that helps. And in many cases, I think it does. But in other cases, the ones that I usually hear about are the parents who said their child was diagnosed with ADHD and then they um, gave him Ritalin and made him worse. He got even, you know, he started um, I don't know, hurting other animals or doing other things at an even greater level. Um, we don't know how to deal with this. He's very violent and aggressive. Um, and then they say they diagnosed him with bipolar disorder and they gave him medicine that made him, you know, draw weird things on the side of the, you know, 
And, and then it progresses towards, you know, they realize that their child has the difficulties with empathy and theory of mind and other types of problems. And then you end up, um, you know, where someone's saying, like, how do I treat these types of problems? Yeah. Um, and, and so, so I, I think ADHD and, and psychopathic traits probably are, are correlated. Um, so if you, the instruments, but it's probably predictor criterion overlap. That is, there's not a good assessment procedures that differentiate uh, them fully. So they are a little bit correlated. But the traits that do differentiate ADHD from psychopathy are those callous and unemotional traits. The lack of empathy, guilt and remorse, the glibness, the superficiality, the lying, the manipulative behaviors, the not planning well um, in, in social environments and stuff. That's Those are traits that you don't see in kids with ADHD. But the impulsivity overlaps. Yeah. yeah. Um, autism is a very different... Simon Baron Cohen wrote a book on this, uh, right? Zero, okay. zero Empathy, um, and uh, trying to talk about the difference between autism and psychopathy. I'd love to hear your take. Um, well, I don't think they're related at all. Um, right. I, think, right. I think autism is more of a theory of mind problem that uh, secondarily then you have problems with empathy because you lack the ability to understand other people. That's right. And that's, that's not a lack of empathy. That's a theory of mind deficit, in my opinion. Um, whereas psychopathy... Individuals with these traits as adults have excellent theory of mind. They're very capable of understanding what they're doing to other people. They just really just don't care. They lack the empathic ability to appreciate um, what they're doing. So I, I think psychopaths have excellent theory of mind. And especially when you sit down and talk to them, they can say, yeah, of course that guy was in pain. Or of course that person is going to act like this. Psychopaths do, though, actually have low emotional intelligence. Um, so we've published some studies on this saying, that they have difficulty working and understanding how groups work. They don't know how to cooperate very well. We've published on social cooperation-like studies and social exchange studies, and psychopaths don't do well on those types of things. So I really think that their, their, their emotional regulation, their emotional behavior, their emotional understanding of others is what's really, truly impaired. And when you combine that with somebody who's impulsive um, and doesn't plan well um, and has done this from a very early age, then you get somebody who's, who's quite dangerous. Do you, have you ever seen a psychopath who picks his nails? Cleans his nails? Picks his nails out of a nervous... I mean, are there any nervous psychopaths? Are there, aren't there like a certain breed of like covert, you know, narcissists and covert psychopaths? Like, what is that? Well, so, so there, 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 is a, there is a, you know, literature, you know, uh, yeah. writings, books and stuff that talk about the primary psychopath from the yeah. secondary you, psychopath. You've, you've talked about primary and secondary, some yeah. published research. Yeah, and so the primary, the primary psychopath is, is somebody who is... Um, you know, parents were otherwise taking care of kids. Normally, this child was just always different. We don't understand why. We thought they had a great environment growing up. So there were no social forces that they believe really crafted somebody to end up with these types of traits as an adult. And, it's, and those can be particularly mystifying to people versus those that have, you know, terrible environments and um, they've been abused and they've had all sorts of other problems um, and they've not had good schooling or education. And then they they've kind of manifest those things as, you know, not caring for other people and being impulsive, et cetera. And sometimes it might be that those two paths might lead you to score high on these traits. Um, it's still an active area of research to prove these two pathways. Right, but right. the belief is that those that score on the secondary pathway um, through those types of trauma histories and other types of, of processes, that they're more high anxious and they have more other anxiety-related problems that go along with their psychopathic-like problems. Um, and, and people have been trying to you know, study the two different things. And some studies suggest that the real affective deficits that we see in laboratory tasks and imaging-related stuff is more limited to those with the primary path than necessarily the secondary path. Hmm. Although I don't think definitive science has been done yet to prove that both don't have problems in the affective domain, 
Um, I just think that anxiety and when you have a psychopath that has some anxiety related problems, it can, it can mask or can make it more diff- third moderating variable that can make it complicated to understand, um, uh, the primary or the underlying, you know, affective problems. So freaking interesting. I want to like change research topics that I study. <laughs> well, well, I'm the guy. If you want to come to prison, you're welcome to come rotate well, through the lab. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I half jokingly say that, but it, what I study is not terribly different from what you study. Just if sure. we think about this a second, I study high achievement and creativity. And I suspect that we're an awful lot of psychopaths that we have put the label genius on who may have maybe have taken credit for other people's work who have – what they've done is they've, ruth, they've ruthlessly – um, uh, uh, manipulated their way to the history books? Um, so certainly it would be an interesting exercise to get credible background information and score some individuals who yeah. have historical prominence. Um, I can tell you, though, that some of the most individuals with psychopathy, you know, they can have, uh, they have very normal to, I think, even above normal IQ. And some of the most impressive psychopaths, the highest scoring psychopaths I've ever met have had IQs of 140 or 160 and, you know, unbelievably smart individuals, but have, again, very limited understanding of emotions and affect. So as you know, IQ, as we typically assess it, um, does not include anything related to the affective domain. Very analytical. Very yeah. Analytical. And, and so they score extremely high on those things, but it's the emotional side of things that they're just really devoid of. And so that's why I really like this construct of emotional intelligence. Um, because it, it helps to really quantify or assess another enormous domain of life, which is interpersonal relationships and how you work with others in group and social cooperation. Um, and so we've been continuing to study these processes to find out how they're related to the problems we see in psychopathy. I love this. So I want to unpack some things here. We can, we can actually talk shop here uh, a bit. Sure. So um, the, let's talk about uh, two major large-scale brain networks, the executive attention network and the default mode network. The default mode network has been related a lot to social emotional functioning. I yeah. suspect, um, I, I'm sure you found that uh, psychopaths have a very fine executive functioning in the sense that they're very, very they can analytically abstract reasoning, they can process um, non-social emotional information well. But is, do you see altered default mode connectivity? Well, so to, to start with the first one, yes, psychopaths pass all sorts of executive functioning tests from working memory to, you know, a wide variety of different attention-based stuff. Um, they, they do show impairments um, in, in some forms of, of cognitive control-like tasks, though. So especially if it engages limbic circuitry, um, you, and, and maybe that boost is necessary for performing it, you'll, you'll see some, some abnormalities there. Um, the default mode network, which obviously includes cingulate, posterior cingulate, um, and, you know, bilateral temporal lobes, um, we do see and have published studies showing that there's, you know, abnormal connectivity, um, in, in those circuits in individuals with psychopathy. Um, and so my general, you know, theory that we've been testing is that, that it is these limbic, paralimbic circuits that are basically not coordinating or functioning with an underlying gray matter deficit, actually, um, as, you know, as you would see in normals. And so the default mode is definitely the one that we found to be more impaired than, than, the, than the executive control system. So, you know, there's the, the famous essay, what is it like to be a bat or something like that? Um, what is it like to, to be a psychopath? Do you think that it, it feels like if I woke up, to, you know, if we woke up tomorrow and we were suddenly a, we were a psychopath for a day, would we suddenly not feel any emotions? Would we not feel emotions? Do they feel emotions at all? 
Oh yeah, no, they have they have a hyper, if you will, almost a hyper repetitive drive. That is, they're they're very much into um, you know finding something that's going to be exciting or novel or fun to do today. Um, often at the you know the cost of um, it's almost like they're just very short sighted. You know, they just they they see something and they want more of the immediate gratification rather than the long term gratification associated with accomplishing yeah. and planning and doing anything. So so a typical day in a psychopath's life and outside the world would be involve usually some some form of, you know, something that's going to be enjoyable or fun or interesting or exciting to do, like maybe doing some drugs and then going to work and then slacking off and then, um, you know, going out and having some drinks. And, 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 and I mean, they're, they're really, you know, it's, it's probably quite difficult to get them to achieve a normal day of work and effort, et cetera. Very rarely would they ever, unless they're completely, you know, hungover, um, would they spend that time alone or ruminating or, or meditating? That's just not like them. They just don't ruminate at all. Do they have the capacity for love? Um, they usually equate, oh, so this is what I was going to mention earlier. They usually equate love with physical satisfaction. Okay. Um, and so they'll often describe love in very concrete terms in terms of the, the woman who was the most voluptuous or the three women they had in the one day, they loved them all, etc. Um, the, the one point that I mentioned earlier is something that we studied for a bit, which was um, abstract representations of stimuli. So um, are, are are lost in psychopaths. They're very concrete, um, and so even proverbs, metaphors, um, you know, even abstract uh, texts like very justice, and then more emotional stuff, love, empathy, etc. They have a lot of difficulty um, responding and processing those words. So, but what did you, you say did, before justice? You said very. The word vary, yes. Really? So, yeah, so psychopaths actually have difficulty estimating time. Oh, wow. So if you ask them, if you ask them... Do they get so to the flow state more often? <laughs> yeah. Well, they're, it, it's a really interesting part of it. It turns out that I, I noticed those types of abstract problems very early in my career interacting with them in prison. Wow. And I did a bunch of studies looking at abstract representations, and we found this interesting effect that the right temporal lobe... Um, and the temporal pole was showing, you know, deficits associated with abstract processing. And it wasn't until I, when I was at Yale where we met that I figured, I, I developed this theory based on cytoarchitectonics or types of numbers and layers of neurons that the temporal pole, this right temporal pole is actually linked to medial temporal lobe, amygdala, hippocampus, orbital frontal cortex from a cytoarchitectonic perspective. And I'm like, oh my God, now it just kind of clicked and made sense that this uh, these behavioral deficits we were seeing are linked to an anatomical region that develops along a, uh, you know, its own d- trajectory, and it's that development that we think is impaired in, in individual psychopathy or is abnormal. I'm noticing an overlap here between lots of brain regions and appetitive drives and extroversion. Um, do you not sure. have introverted psychopaths? Because, no, because you know, I when I study extroverts, dumb. they have a heightened uh, dopamine reward system, and you probably see the same thing in psychopaths, right? So, well, psychopaths are, um, it's a good question. We haven't seen any clinical studies of high-scoring individual psychopathy looking at reward-related stuff in great detail. Um, but my clinical observations with them is that they are, well, it's interesting. So they're, they're very likely to engage in reward-seeking-related behaviors, consuming a wide variety of different types of drugs, um, you know, engaging in a wide variety of pleasurable activities like sex, etc. They're very promiscuous. Um, but they, it's almost more that they're interested in the frequency of it rather than in the cultivating of a, a more deeper, you know, understanding of it. That's what's interesting about their drug use is that they don't even really stick to any drugs. So we actually think their neurobiology is even protected from dependence on drugs. Um, and I published a series of studies on this. But um, it, it really is interesting how different their biology is from others and how they um, and how it 
it's related to their behaviors that we report and, and score and assess. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, and I want to make it clear, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that all inter- extroverts are psychopaths. No. Uh, but what I, yeah. I just want to make it clear before I get in trouble. But um, I, you know, just dawned on me, you know, because there's uh, we know, we heightened heightened reward network uh, brain areas in extroverts as well. Sure. No, I think there's that overlap. Yeah. So in classic assessments of personality, you know, the extroversion is. Um, you know, one of the most closely aligned with, you know, psychopathic traits. It's that classic model, models of personality don't often assess or carefully assess the interpersonal and affective stuff. Um, and, and that's what is what really differentiates psychopaths from extroverts is that they have both the extroversion, impulsivity and outgoingness and social disinhibition, but they also have an inability to appreciate those emotional stimuli, those emotional yeah. content. And, and, you know, the hexaco model, not the big five, but the hexaco model has an extra factor that seems to hold very highly on psychopathy in the dark, the big five. So is that, did Colin, is that Colin's model, Colin DeYoung? No, 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 he, no, no, he no, no. I, Okay. No, he's one, he's one of my major collaborators. I know that yeah. you guys know each other, right? You yes, yes, yes. Um, well, I was, he, when last time he was here, we were speaking about this, and he was saying that there's some new personality models that are coming out trying to assess psychopathic traits, callousness, and emotional traits more carefully because so, they were, yeah. So his model is the BFAS, Big Five Aspect Scales, but that's actually still part of the Big Five. But the Hexaco model has this humility dimension um, that seems to be the opposite end of the humility pole, dishonesty, um, yeah. seems to correlate almost perfectly with the dark triad common variance. Okay. So, um, yes, anyway, so m- maybe that's like a good model, the Hexaco model. Um, okay. We're talking a lot of shop here, by the way. I bet we lost a lot of people. Um, <laughs> by the way, not because they're low intelligence, but, you know, they're not. They don't have all this expertise. But I'll put some links in the show notes to things to further explain the kind of things we're talking about. Great. Um, uh, just a couple more minutes, actually, because this is – we're almost done. This is, was really great. I, I do want to end – I want to talk about – uh, about the environmental developmental path, like what do psychopaths are like in child? What's myth and not myth about that? And uh, yeah, let's start there, and then I have one last topic I want to cover. Okay, um, I wouldn't mind wrapping up with a little bit about some of the treatments. That's that we, that's we why, that's why, okay. That's why okay, I, well, yeah. that's why we that's why we think alike. Okay, yeah. so um, so developmentally, uh, the, the earlier you try to go in assessing these counseling and emotional traits, I think the more complicated and difficult it is, um, and the more careful you have to be. For many reasons, but also because you don't want to, uh, you know, identify someone as being on this trajectory when there's a strong probability they're not, for example. So you don't want to label or have other types of problems. But um, the children, you know, I can tell you that every adult psychopath I've interviewed had a very different childhood from pretty much any kid I've ever interacted with. Um, and so I think that if we ca- are careful about it, we can assess and understand um, kids who are on a high-risk trajectory towards developing this disorder as an adult are scoring high. But, um, you know, the things that we typically see are are the, some of them you hear about in the movies and stuff like that. They've, they've definitely done something with animals or they've had some sort of a, um, you know, they've had some aggression or violence towards animals. Um, but most parents, of the best aren't necessarily serial killers. Correct, correct. Okay. So, I don't, so uh, yes, that's absolutely correct. In fact, serial killers are extremely rare and usually have other problems in addition to psychopathy. Um, okay. maybe, but, could, um, maybe could you include in your description of the early development path also talk about the uh, the factors that separate the developing serial killer from the developing mm-hmm. psychopath? Well, that would be the next book that I'm working okay. on writing. Yeah, awesome. but um, the um, I, I think that 
if you if you start to see, you know, the the kids, they don't develop strong attachments with their peers. They don't engage in in any social sports, um, even though they're fully capable of doing so. Um, they don't engage in team activities. They never participate in the chess club, for example, or or something that. Or I mean, you know, clubs that require you know team cooperation and showing up and practicing and stuff like that. They're just not capable of sticking to that type of a regimen. Um, and then you would often see that there's going to be high-risk behavior starting very early. So this might be burglaries by themselves before the age of 12, not done with some older kid who got them in trouble, for example. It's going to be precocious sexual activity before the age of 12. or um, So not, not, this is not the kids that find the Playboy and go read them in the corner and anything like that. This is some kid who's you know, broken into a house to watch you know, girls undress or do something you know, that is extremely... Uh, you know, disinhibited. You know, it's it's basically um, it's something that the parents are like, what what just happened? You know, and it's it's not just like the one event where you might see them getting in an argument or a fight or do a kicking or throwing blocks or doing something like that. But it's it's a repetitive, you know, low frustration tolerance, a willingness to engage in significant aggression, um, and then a real inability to learn from you know the sanctions that are put in place, and so they keep doing those bad things. And so this is the type of thing that we're seeing. And interpersonally, um, you know, being potentially manipulative, being um, uh, lying and, and not even necessarily for any reason. Like we've all told our parents lies, like I didn't go out too late or I didn't do this. But this is where they do it when there's really not even a, a reason why. Um, and so it's it's mendacity is how it's typically referred to, which is just a, just a little bit, just like one stroke below, you know, confabulation. So they're, they're making up stories to impress and play and to create, you know, a sense of excitement and, and that they're cool uh, for whatever positive, whatever reasons, but there's just readily checked and they're just like, they're totally lying, you know? Um, and so that's the very common thing that you see in, in these kids. Um, and then if anything, it just continues to escalate in adolescence um, more severe antisocial behavior, gravitation towards um, even riskier types of things from, uh, you know, antisocial types of things. Um, and then they end up, um, you know, often in some sort of correctional environment. Um, is where we typically see them. But in terms of the nature-nurture interaction, you were oh. trying to say something about parents earlier. I think I cut you off. Oh, well, there have been some recent studies looking at assessing these traits in kids and the interaction with various parenting styles, for example. And so... If parents reach their, you know, authoritative parents, for example, who are very strict and rigorous, et cetera, um, that tends to interact with these kids and it becomes this back and forth that ends up both having even more severe behavioral problems. So there are certain parenting styles that appear to be, um, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, uh, you provide firm, concrete rules, but you reward the positive behaviors. You have small graduated punishments. It's very much like a contingency management kind of approach that we use in, a, in adult contemporary psychotherapy. Um, and you, you provide those really concrete rules for them about the bad things and then escalate the award, rewards in such a way that it's likely to, you know, change their behavior so they learn that it's in their own best interest to, to act in a better way, in a different way. And then that eventually molds and shapes them into learning that I get more things that I prefer with this behavior than the really bad things that can happen with the other behavior. Right. I mean, there's this psychologist, Fallon, is that his name? He says he's a psychopath. 
Yeah, um, he's not. He's not a psychopath. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe you can talk a little more about that. So his argument is like, well, I have the genes for a psychopath, but I didn't become a psychopath because my parents were nice to me. Um, is there some truth to, to that statement? Like, can you have can you have the predisposition to be a psychopath, but have good protective factors? Yeah. Um, well, I think that that's one of the shapes and the models around, um, you know, being, you know, with the parenting research and the other types of things that people are doing is that there can certainly be a lot of social environments that can curb the full manifestation of these traits. That is, you can, um, you know, you can take someone with most any disability and help to improve the outcomes with the right environment so that they can function and appear to work more normally. And certainly with children who have these traits or who have these problems or whatever it is, genetic, biological, environmental vulnerabilities to these traits, that environment can play a huge role in treatment in, in helping to manage those traits. Um, I, I mean, I can tell you that, you know, Dr. Fallon's not a psychopath because he's, the rest of his life is 100% certainty, um, you know, doesn't score high in psychopathic traits. He's a little bit, you know, I'm not quite sure. I think he was just trying to sell a book, I would say. Okay. Um, and I, But I don't think this, he's done any real science in this area and I don't know that he really understands how to assess the traits and stuff like that. We've interacted a few times. I've often tried to, you know, help adjust or correct some of the things that he's written about. But um, there's a lot of there's been a large proliferation of these books. That was one of the motivations that I, I wrote it because there's so much misinformation. They just people continually jump on the bandwagon of writing about something that's interesting, but they don't necessarily do their homework to get it correct. Um, and that's unfortunate. I just wish that I, I consider Jim's work to be like a an interesting work of fiction that's kind of, um, you know, interesting, but I don't consider it to be nonfiction. Sure. And then there's like this other person who said, uh, I, I have, I think I have somewhere on my shelf, like by, <laughs> by not a non-scientist, she's like a, a woman and she says what it's like to be a psychopath and, you know, and all Confessions that. of a psychopath. Yeah. 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 We were, we, I've had a colleague who actually interacted in, in a television production or a radio production and my, my, I haven't read the book, but I, my interactions and in listening to that, um, interaction with that she's actually has different issues. Those are not psychopathic issues that she's describing. Okay. The question I'm asking is what kind of person would want to make pretend they're a psychopath when they're not really a psychopath? That seems to be an individual differences variable in itself. You see what I'm um, saying? Yeah, well, I only know one person who's tried to do that, um, or two, I guess, that are both trying to sell books. Are those the two people we just talked about? Yes. <laughs> so I, I, um, I, it, it, it's probably trying to do a healthy dose of these types of things, but the genes also that, that Dr. Fallon talked about, those those are not necessarily ever been related to psychopathy. Yeah. Um, and so we are actively doing that type of research, but the vast majority of studies that have been done to date would suggest that those are not genes related to psychopathy. The and, warrior genes? The warrior. Yeah, the MAOA and the DOD and the other types of genes So yeah. that he is referring to. So, uh, again, definitive science hasn't been done yet, but yeah. certainly there's the only one paper published on MAO by psychopathy and didn't find an association. So So interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I really want to be respectful of your time and let's talk about treatment. Um, sure. Because this, this obviously has so much important societal implications. Can we yeah. treat, can we treat psycho psychopaths? Um, I think we, uh, there's a very exciting program in Wisconsin called the, at the Mendota Juvenile Treatment Center. Um, and this is a facility that treats the highest risk boys in the state of Wisconsin that even can't be managed by other correctional sites. And so they're sent there for behavioral maladjustment treatment um, to try to help develop a way to make them behave within the prison setting and then hopefully behave when they get out. And what this program has done is it's tapped into all of the science of psychopathy and behavioral treatment, um, and it has created a state-of-the-art intensive treatment program that really has shown that it makes a difference. 
Um, and the main difference that it shows is it reduces uh, institutional infraction. The kids don't get more um, fights and other types of things, which leads to less prison time. They get out on a more normal schedule. But also, the kids develop a, a sense of self-worth and a sense of cognitive of control of themselves such that they don't act violently when they get out, or at least they're they're 50% less likely to act violently if they went through this program than if they went through the system as normal. And so if you can show, that's a huge, huge effect, 50% yeah, reduction. That's, that's a, in violence. Like economically as well, right? Was that it does, other? it does, Chapter 10. Um, that's talked about in my book. Um, so I, I, def- knew, I knew that. I, was saying I that know, I know. I'm just teasing you. Um, so absolutely, I think that economically, when you can develop a program that helps to reduce the chances the kids come back to prison and it reduces violence as well, that that's going to be, it's an economic windfall for the states to implement such programs. In fact, Georgia, um, the state of Georgia just adopted uh, an identical program. So they're building a facility and setting up the same type of program in order to try to duplicate the successes that they've had in Wisconsin. What are some specifics about the program? Like what are um, they doing? Sure. It's intensive. It's one-on-one. Um, it uses contingency management principles, so it, re- it uses reward um, and significant rewards, rewards that get the kids' attention all the way up, for example, to like video games in their cells, candy bars, if they're, you know, other things that kids are intrinsically motivated to try to obtain. And it uses that to help shape their behavior so that they're not aggressive and, and violent towards their peers. And then they gradually gravitate towards um, interacting and working with peers. Young kids are working with peers who are farther along in the program, and it slowly engages them in, in a lot of different skills, training, um, and education, of course, but then eventually integrates them back with their family while they're at the facility so that they're, everybody is prepared for when the child's going to be released and come back home. They've dealt with those issues in a secured environment so that there's much less, so there's a whole variety of different principles, but the, the main ones are that they've addressed this poor decision-making, poor planning, impulsivity component, and they've really helped to cultivate the, through positive reinforcement, um, reshaping the behavior so they're more thoughtful and planning. And, and I mean, my favorite character that I've written about, um, you know, he's been crime-free for now some 10 years, um, and he was one of the highest-risk kids at that facility. But he's been married a couple of times. He's, this is his third wife that he's um, with right now. So it's not like they cured psychopathy or they cured his ability to, to work and manage all of his relationships, but he has certainly had a significant improvement. And in a field where the dogma is that they're untreatable, this type of program and the steps that it has made to uh, make such positive change in the lives of the kids and in the lives of society, I think is just one of the best things we should be talking about. I agree that that is wonderful. Um, but you know, in the, in the spirit of like positive psychology, the field I work in, that's like getting them from like, you know, negative 20 to zero. Um, what is, do you think there's a, there's a positive psychology of psychopaths possible? Are psychopaths ever capable of not only being rehabilitated, um, or to reduce their crime, but to have them in compassion, to have them have love, have even self-compassion. Could they have, like, has anyone ever done self-compassion meditation with them? And has anyone ever injected them with oxytocin? Um, my well, questions. Um, so uh, to my knowledge, there's been no such clinical trials looking at those types of mindfulness types of techniques. Um, we actually are in the middle of working on a potential grant. I don't even want to name 
the collaborators yet because we're still formulating them. But we are planning to work with a very prominent person in mindfulness um, and trying to implement uh, a multi-site study of mindfulness by imaging to see if it can improve. Richie, um, Richie Davis, Davidson. Yes, of course, of course it's Richie. He's a long-time friend. And so uh, hopefully he won't see this before he'd say our signs on the dotted line. But we're trying to recruit I him. I can edit this out if you want. To participate. No, that's fine. Okay. Um, and, and with other colleagues, Mike Koenigs and others in Wisconsin. So we, we would really like to try to do some sort of a large-scale mindfulness program. And to NIH's credit, they encouraged us to submit such a program. Beautiful. Um, oxytocin is another great question. I've actually uh, worked with some people. We've done some initial studies. I would say that the results have not been great. And the, the reason is that there also was some, some issues in the sense that we were working with sex offenders um, in that study, and there's some other issues going on besides just psychopathy. So, um, but we don't have any good evidence of oxytocin yet, as well. So, there's a lot of science that could be done, and more appreciation of the impact their behavior has yeah. on others. Be good, a little but. less to oxytocin for them. Yes. Um, yeah. There's domain-specific psychopathy, you know, and its impact with oxytocin. Um, have you ever? I I want to uh, leave with this question. Have you ever been um, with a psychopath, and you were, you know? Shaken, you're you're definitely shaken oh, yeah. with the the. And could you give an example of of just because I I don't want to romanticize psychopathy at all. Oh. And I would like to before we leave today, if you could give a concrete example of of just what depths of evil some of them are 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 uh, carrying with them. Um. So there's been a few cases in my life where I've actually stopped the interview and have said I just don't need to know anything more about this person because what they did was so bad that that they're you know, they're just never going to let them out. And so that's, that's happened only a few times. Um, and, you know, I, I actually, um, uh, I, I've written about a lot of the different individuals that I um, have worked with and some of the things that they've done. And hopefully the stories will come across as they're very fun and exciting and engaging. And then they tell you about how they raped and killed someone and disposed of the body. And you, you know, you realize, I think you get a poignant sense of just how bad they can be. Um, and, and certainly it's when, you know, I, I recently interviewed somebody who scored very high in psychopathy and I said, so you don't have any problems with rape? I mean, you know, no, no, no. Their response was, I like consensual sex too. Oh my, I, really? Yeah, and they're like, but they just, there was just absolutely no concerns whatsoever with rape. Oh. But um, it, it was a really, truly um, amazing how just without any concerns whatsoever, just has no concerns with rape. And someone with four sisters and a daughter, um, you know, it's just, it's just, it was staggering. It actually, it actually took me a few minutes to compose myself. I took a big drink of water and, and sat back and I've never had anybody, you know, even convicted rapists, they know that they're doing is potentially wrong, but this one just had no vibe whatsoever, had no thread whatsoever that he thought that was a problem. Wow. And so it's a very dangerous person. Well, he's never going to get out of prison, so that's a good thing. But um, it was yeah. just clinically fascinating to really study that there actually are people that are like that. Absolutely. Kent, thank you so much for the important work you're doing to advancing our understanding of these uh, breed of humans. Um, and um, do you think they're human? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I do hold out a lot of help that they can be managed and treated, and um, you can steer them away from doing those bad things. It just takes a lot of effort and and hopefully some good science. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, thanks, Scott, for the invitation. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as informative and thought-provoking as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can go to thepsychologypodcast.com.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. 